Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you are joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, let me welcome you back. With the Biden administration now in office, Israel Policy Forum remains as committed as ever to our mission and our vision. For those who are new to us, Israel Policy Forum works to educate policymakers, Jewish community leaders, and leaders of the next generation to be informed and effective in their support of U.S. efforts to advance a viable two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, consistent with Israel's security. To all of our supporters on today's call, thank you. For those who have not yet done so, I would encourage you to make a contribution to Israel Policy Forum. Your gift supports not just these Tuesday webinars, but also the weekly Koplo column, Israel Policy Pod, community programming, briefings for the Biden administration and the 117th Congress, and development of the next generation of leaders and policymakers. Community leaders, journalists, and interested individuals like you, please help support this vital resource by visiting israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving to make your gift today. Thank you. Now on to today's program. The Biden administration faces many challenging questions in the Middle East. The Abraham Accords were successful in formalizing normalization between Israel and several Arab states. But the concessions the Trump administration made to help produce these deals leave a complicated policy legacy. The United States often contentious relationship with Saudi Arabia also faces new strains. Beyond this, there are questions related to the new administration's approach to Iran moving forward. To help us break down these issues, we are fortunate to be joined by two leading experts on U.S. policy in the Middle East. Elisa Katalno-Ewers is an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security's Middle East Security Program, and Kaylee Thomas is an associate fellow at CNS. With that, Elisa and Kaylee, thank you again so much for joining us. So Elisa, I'm going to start with you. One of the few points of agreement between President Biden and his immediate predecessor, Donald Trump, was on the Abraham Accords. During the 2020 campaign, then-candidate Biden praised the Accords and promised to support Arab-Israeli normalization moving forward. But last week, the Biden administration announced that it would suspend a major arms package for the UAE, including F-35 stealth fighter jets and military drones, a sale initiated under the administration in order to review that arms deal. Could you please describe this process? Why is the Biden administration suspending the sale? Is it typical for a new administration to pause an arms sale? And is it likely to be canceled or could it still move ahead? Well, thank you so much first, Susie, to you and to the Israel Policy Forum for inviting us and for having this conversation. I know Kaylee and I are both very excited for, for this chance to have a little bit of a chat. Uh, on your specific question, I think I'll make a couple of points. I think first, uh, right off the bat, I, I think not unusual and in fact common practice for a new administration to review a previous administration's policies and decisions, particularly those that happened in the latter months uh, of that former administration. So the fact that there is a review, and I would qualify it as a pause and review rather than a suspension, is not at all unusual or surprising. But I think I want to make a couple of points about looking at this in the context of a broader framework 
first that the Biden administration before January 20th and even since has really signaled a desire to rebalance the tools of of U.S. national security policy, right? Elevating diplomacy and economic statecraft. And in the Middle East in particular, this this becomes kind of a central tenant, particularly when you look at, you know, a prevailing approach over a number of decades that has been over-militarized. So looking at security cooperation in its totality, and that includes arms sales, but is not only arms sales, is going to be considered in the context of this broader point. Uh, I think the second point I would make is also just the question of reviewing U.S. interests in terms of proliferation concerns and interests, transparency, uh, ensuring that U.S. strategic interests are being met by such sales. Of course, the technical specifics of the sale, which we can get into if there are questions about that. Uh, but how they align to U.S. threat assessments. I think all of these things take time for a new team to review and consider. And, and then finally, I think I would also add that there's been no secret by senior members of the Biden administration that they look to have a very honest and clear-eyed conversation with partners in the region about what U.S. policy looks like moving forward. So this is a reflection of how we use U.S. tools in a time of austerity in the context of a post-COVID world and U.S. priorities, both at home and abroad, uh, and geopolitics of competition with Russia and China in the region, right-sizing military posture. I think all of these things become part of that assessment and necessary to think about when we look at this particular decision to review the arms sales package. The F-35 is a really significant platform. So it's no surprise that this conversation conversation needs to happen. Thank you for that. Um, Kaylee, given that the F-35 sale was treated as a concession to produce UAE Israel normalization, how could this impact relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates? What does this mean for the Emirati relationship with the United States? Yeah, I think um, to begin with, you know, obviously the UAE saw a potential deal with the United States on the F-35 as part of this package that incentivized the Emiratis, Emiratis to enter into the Abraham Accords. But obviously that was only one piece of it, piece of it from the Emirati perspective. Um, as you mentioned, Susie, in your introductory remarks, that the Abraham Accords were really a formal marker of normalization um, in ties between the UAE and Israel. Obviously, they had an existing relationship that happened behind closed doors before the accord. So um, I think definitely that's an important foundation here. And especially there are so many other opportunities that already kind of exist under the umbrella of the Abraham Accords that the UAE can still pursue and benefit from, especially in regards to economic opportunities, another market, to leverage a benefit um, from the leadership role that Israel has in technological innovation, which is something that the UAE is definitely interested in. So in terms of impact on UAE-Israeli relations moving forward, I would hope um, that the, the Emiratis are able to hold some kind of separation while this review is ongoing. How it impacts the US-UAE uh, relationship Alisa uh, alluded to this, but I think if anyone was reading the room in D.C. over the last four years, this kind of pause and review of the 35 sale should not come as a surprise. Um, first and foremost, because uh, the Biden team is obviously going to want to look at a lot, a whole host of Trump policies um, that were put in place over the last four years. And also because it does come as part of this larger package of relooking at the U.S. role in the Middle East. I think that was a, a central tenant when it 
the Middle East did come up in the 2020 campaign for, for most Democratic candidates was we need to kind of pause and step back and, and look at what we're really doing in the region. And so examining our partnerships, um, what kind of are those foundational pillars? I think what we've seen is that security is only going to be one of those pillars and the Biden team will really be looking to elevate diplomacy, coordination on these global issues such as COVID, climate, et cetera, as they move forward. Thank you, Kaylee. I got one more for you before I turn it back to Lisa, which is how might future normalization deals be impacted? Do you believe this move reduces the incentive for other states to normalize relations with Israel? Are other concessions made by the Trump administration in pursuit of Israel-Arab state normalization, such as U.S. recognition of Moroccan sovereignty in the Western Sahara, now at risk? I would start with the um, kind of presumption that all Trump policies are kind of on the table as far as the Biden administration is concerned in terms of taking, you know, I think they're taking the time now. Um, we're not, you know, too long after inauguration to really look around and say, what, you know, what is the state of things? How does that match with what our, you know, policy agenda priorities are and how do we move forward from there and executing how that impacts, you know, future normalization deals. I think they've been pretty clear and consistent, you know, throughout the transition that they support, you know, a normalization of ties with Israel from a whole host of countries. And I think they'll continue that. Will they approach it differently than the Trump team did? Probably. I wouldn't be surprised on that front. And this is a really pragmatic team with deep experience uh, in terms of the Middle East and, and a lot of these kinds of um, agreements and sales. So, I think it's important to keep that in mind, especially as all of this is happening through this kind of wider lens um, and their effort to reassert U.S. diplomacy, also credibility, um, but still being rather judicious about the role of the U.S. in the world, knowing that this is a time to not just fall back into old patterns, but to really chart a new course. Elisa, in addition to halting the UAE arms deal, President Biden also froze arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Why did he do this? So I, I think what we're, we're seeing throughout these decisions is really a signal that the Biden administration sees security cooperation not as a transactional tool, right? That this is part and parcel of the whole of a bilateral relationship, whether that is with Saudi Arabia in the context of the precision guided missiles that have that the munitions that have been uh, paused at this moment, whether it's in the context of the F-35s, uh, as Kaylee alluded on, on questions of you know, Morocco normalization and Western Sahara, that all of these things should serve U.S. interests and that they will be viewed through that lens. And that applies certainly to the case of, of the particular arms sales that were part of the package for Saudi Arabia. I think the other point that's probably worth mentioning here is, you know, after the four years of a Trump administration and the relationship that that administration had to the region, the perception that it gave the region's leaders in many respects a blank check in, in terms of activities in the region and beyond, it's really not a surprise. I think we're saying this a lot, Kelly and I, not a surprise that the new team would take a pause and to assess and review everything that's been transacted over the last four years. In that context, I think important to be very honest about 
what we've seen signaled from, from senior members of the Biden team before January 20th publicly, certainly through the transition, through the campaign, and even before so, about really needing to have honest, clear conversations with our partners in the region and specifically with the Saudi leadership so that both sides kind of understand what the interests and concerns are, that we can focus on those needs to, to maximize the areas where the shared interests are there and to really take a hard-nosed view on how to address where the differences are. And I think in the Saudi-US bilateral relationship, this is certainly part of the calculation. Kaylee, how does the Biden administration plan on reconciling the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia with the kingdom's human rights record, which President Biden has repeatedly criticized, in particular the civilian toll of the war in Yemen and the assassination of journalist Jamal Khashoggi? Yeah, I think um, I think this isn't, you know, the writing has been on the wall in regards to this for a while, especially since the assassination of Khashoggi. Um and, and it's not just criticism from President Biden and his administration, but there has been plenty of criticism from the Hill as well. So I think there's an environment in which Saudi Arabia is especially aware that there is a challenge it's facing in terms of how the, you know, the kingdom's relationship with the United States is going to evolve moving forward. And, and President Biden has been pretty clear about, A, wanting to reset that relationship, and B, the fact that human rights are going to be a priority of the U.S. government not just in the terms of the Middle East, but globally um, with countries around the world. You know, in this kind of situation of valuing a security partnership and a different kind of partnership, while also wanting to, um, you know, be cognizant of, of the challenges and the human rights um, abuses that the country commits is not unique to this relationship. So I think this is, um, you know, an important case for how the United States move forward uh, in many different, many different regions around the world. I think first and foremost, what we'll see is definitely an elevation of, you know, this um, on the agenda and in, in conversations between the two countries. And, and of course, a lot of that conversation has been happening publicly because President Biden was yet to be in office. But hopefully what will happen now, as Elisa said, is some really kind of forthright, honest, private conversations about you know, where there are things that, you know, the United States and Saudi Arabia can address together, but also what are some hard limits, some boundaries, um, some conditions for support? Um, you know, this is an, an overall trend that I think we're going to like really be um, all, all of you over the head with, but we're going to see a more discerning administration, um, especially because the Middle East isn't going to be probably a top priority. Um, so they're go we're going to see, you know, a little bit, um, you know, more better, I think, placed judgment about about where our interests lie, what we need to do to protect and serve those interests. Um, and if there are countries who are not willing to come to the table and be constructive partners, then yeah, I think those relationships may take a backseat to others. Um, and, you know, we'll see, especially when it comes to Iran over the coming months and, and consultations there, if Saudi Arabia is really ready uh, to be a constructive player. Elisa, is there a connection between the Biden administration's interest in putting pressure on Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and the UAE and re-entering the JCPOA nuclear deal with Iran, a rival of Riyadh and Abu Dhabi? So I, I think the Biden administration and the team that makes up the administration now has been really clear before January 20th and since that it sees 
engagement on the nuclear file, and we can talk about the JCPOA specifically as a serving interests of the U.S. as well as the region. So this isn't an either or proposition, really, that the JCPOA and a return to compliance with the JCPOA, both on the part of the United States and on the part of Iran, helps to de-escalate what has become an increasingly escalated situation in the region. It ensures that Iran doesn't have an immediate free hand to restart on all fronts in its nuclear program and kind of freezes that situation while we begin to address the, the flaws and imperfections of the JCPOA as it was negotiated now you know, over six years ago and, and, and addressing what's transpired since then. And that's where the team, I think, has intention to do exactly what it says it's going to do, which is to lay the foundations to lengthen and strengthen the deal, as well as to address issues outside the purview of the JCPOA. Uh, as, as Kaylee just said, I think what this provides is an opportunity for regional players to be constructive partners in that process. And you, those are the conversations that will begin now. And when you take a look at the actions by Riyadh and Abu Dhabi and others in the region since the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA, you know, I think there's been an overall recognition that engagement is probably a better alternative to the conflict or near conflict uh, threshold we've been at for the better part of two years. They themselves have taken steps to de-escalate with Iran directly in the aftermath of some of the most escalatory and provocations by Iran in the region. And even comments out of the region since inauguration, I think, are in this vein. So there's room here to work together on the Iran file. And I think a very professional, pragmatic Biden team has every intention of testing that proposition. I just want to remind our audience, if you do have a question, and we do have some in the queue already, but please feel free to type one in the Q&A box. Um, Kaylee, how does Iran perceive stress in the relationships between the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and the UAE? Yeah, I think um, there would definitely, first and foremost, be some smiling faces in Tehran if the UAE did not, in fact, end up with F-35s. Um, but that's a pretty unlikely outcome to the larger kind of general stress in the relationship. Obviously, um, you know, Iran's strategy in the region is based on sowing discord among those it perceives as a threat. Um, and so this is another opportunity to kind of weaken all of these ties and make sure that those who are looking to confront it um, and, in its opinion, occasionally attempt to dismantle the regime um, are, are not coordinated. But I think tying this back in to Elisa's recent answer um, about how the US and the Gulf can work together uh, on Iran, it could be that this is actually the fact that there's this stress in the other areas of the Gulf-US relationship could actually put kind of a greater emphasis and need for the UAE and Saudi Arabia specifically to be more cooperative on the Iran file. If everything else um, is sensitive, an issue, and they've definitely, you know, felt the pressure of Iran's fire during the Trump administration, you know, a US that did not come to their defense as they hoped it would or in the manner that they hoped to see. So as, as much as Iran kind of, I think, sees this as an opportunity, um, if they're smart, they also know that this could really play a different way in Washington. Elisa, Secretary of State Tony Blinken has affirmed that the United States will consult with regional partners, including the Gulf states, as it seeks to reenter the Iran deal. 
What would such consultation actually entail? And could it ameliorate Israeli and Gulf concerns about the JCPOA? Kaylee and I and our colleague, Alain Goldenberg, have written a lot about this over the last uh, almost going on two years, I think. And in the, the underlying premise from our perspective has always been that there needs to be kind of a structured and clear way to discuss issues on Iran with regional partners outside of the nuclear file. You know, in some ways, this is much more complicated than dealing with the nuclear program that Iran has. Uh, but there are a few elements that we thought were important. The first, the team has already done, I think, quite persuasively, and that is to articulate the U.S.'s intention to engage in a conversation with the regional partners and ultimately with Iran and other global partners about issues outside of the nuclear file on Iranian policies that are problematic for U.S. interests and global interests at large that are outside of the purview of the JCPOA. And you know, Secretary Blinken has already done that at numerous times, in fact, since his, his confirmation hearing, it's consistent with what we heard from President Biden on the campaign trail and from other members of the team. And so that signaling in a public way has already been an important step, I think. Uh, I, I think it reflects also that the U.S. believes that this is something that all parties should see as important, right? This is not about a U.S. negotiation with Iran on regional issues. It is, in fact, you know, something to be done in concert with our European partners and with partners in the region. Again, something I think they've been very clear in, in articulating already in the what, 12 days that they've been in office. Uh, and, you know, I think in terms of the construct, here's where that kind of return to diplomacy as a first order tool comes into play. You, this is where I think a very seasoned and professional team get, you sees an opportunity to shape and spur regional dialogues that really look to lessen conflict, uh, that they will be con constructive and pragmatic discussions. So they will be difficult. They won't happen immediately. They won't have that sense of instant gratification. There's a kind of a long view that needs to be taken here. But in some of the writing that Kaylee and Alan and I have done, we talk about areas that are, are really ripe for opportunity, things that are like what the region looks like after COVID, uh, looking at climate change, looking at humanitarian crises in the region, and, and building up toward difficult conversations about protracted conflicts in the region, missile control, you know, regional nuclear arrangements, all those things that everyone has talked about for years that will require disciplined, methodical diplomacy to lay the groundwork to have those kinds of constructive dialogues. And I think that is precisely the kind of formula, for lack of a better term, that Secretary Blinken uh, is alluding to in his comments. So I'm gonna to turn to audience questions. We have several uh, in the queue and, and I hope we get to a lot of them. Um, Kaylee, Robert Kantowitz asked the following, getting beyond the F-35s, is Jen Psaki's statement that the State Department would review the Abraham Accords instead of a full-throated, of course we are in favor and want to get more, a signal that the administration may take various actions that unravel the Accords? Um, I would not take that comment to mean that they're seeking to unravel the Accords. I mean, I think this goes back to what Elisa and I have been saying across the board that, um, you know, they're coming in to... Um, 
uh, it's a new administration. So there's a lot of new staff on board and, and it was definitely um, not the smoothest transition period. So they're still getting up to speed. So I think review should be taken to mean review. Um, and I think there's, you know, a better, they're taking the time to, to better assess really kind of probably how all of those concessions were reached, what those concessions are, et cetera. This review of the F-35 deal is part of that probably, but they've, you know, expressed support for the Abraham Accords before taking office. So I wouldn't take one um, statement that maybe wasn't as enthusiastic as, as some people wanted to hear it said um, as a negation of that previous support. Lisa, uh, Errol Barg, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, um, says Haaretz has reported that the IDF now agrees with Netanyahu and would support a defense pact with the U.S. What might a defense pact look like and what would the Biden administration likely expect in return for entering such a pact? So if I if I could, Susie, I'd love to build a little bit on the previous question as well. And I and I think that that actually kind of builds into a conversation about what security cooperation and so-called PACs in the region look like. But I wouldn't underestimate the importance of how U.S. supply of security material, especially advanced weaponry like the F-35, kind of brings its own need to assess technical specifications and issues that are involved, right? So beyond just whether or not this was a, this was part of the Abraham's Accord and viewed only in that lens, you, I, I would emphasize the need to look at providing that kind of equipment to anyone, uh, even close partners, is one that deserves scrutiny, right? Because these are U.S. U.S. weapon systems that are being deployed in a, let's all be honest, not the most stable part of the world. And so thinking through the second and third order effects of that are incredibly important. And, and a seasoned team like the Biden team is gonna look at that on its own merits, separate and apart from the very important strategic role that it played in the Abraham Accords. But you technically speaking, what a sale of this kind of platform to more partners in the region really means for security and, and prosperity in the region, U.S. focus on stabilization, uh, et cetera. And so I, I wouldn't want to lose that point uh, as, import, as an important part of the calculation here that is separate and apart from the Abraham Accords. You know, I, I will admit that I did not see this the most recent comment referenced. Um, and so what a defense pact really looks like, I think, is is something that that should require maybe some robust discourse publicly and otherwise. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I make the point that the U.S.-Israel relationship across the security domain, it is deep broad and robust. And so where there is room to improve that kind of cooperation and coordination, I'm sure that the team has every intention, again, in the context of the broader bilateral, to take a look at what that means, uh, as it will for other partners in the region and where it can find commonalities to work together with partners across the security domain. I, I think there is an interest in seeing how to build that kind of cooperation, build that kind of interoperability for to use a technical term, uh, and, and, and ensure that the threats that we all agree are present in the region are being addressed in the most effective way possible, while also looking at, at the burden on U.S. assets in that calculation, right? So, so to the extent that a defense 
pact, I'm going to put that in quotations because I don't really know what that means, uh, allows for an opportunity for the U.S. to look at its posture, what it needs to use in the region, what it needs to deploy elsewhere, and build that into a conversation with effective partners on their security posture, I think that's that's a reasonable conversation to expect that the new team at the Department of Defense and at the Department of State is intending on having. Great. Um, Kaylee, Michael Cohen asks, is there any meaning for Biden not having called Netanyahu yet? Um, I mean, I think I said earlier, the Middle East is not going to be the top priority of this administration. Um, and I think, you know, that that comes down to a lot of different things. There are a lot of um, other priorities that the Biden administration has had thus far. I am not part of the administration and thus can't speak to specific motivations. Um, but I think what's important to realize moving forward that we've kind of said and again and again is that this is a really pragmatic administration who is, you know, moving forward um, step by step very intentionally. Um, and they're juggling a lot. Uh, we're still struggling in the United States with a, a COVID-19 pandemic, you know, with a vaccine rollout that's been really slow. Um, there are a lot of a lot of things to look at at home before we really start moving out on foreign policy abroad. So we have a question from Alan Luxembourg and either one of you can take this uh, one of the surprises in Israel-UAE normalization is the degree of warmth in the new contacts between the two countries, unlike, say, Israel-Egypt relations after the peace treaty was finalized. Is this replicable elsewhere in the Middle East, and should it not be a high priority of the Biden administration to build on this? I'm happy to start and Kaylee weigh in. Uh, you know, on the question of whether it's replicable, I am not entirely sure. I think it reflects a few things that are worth considering as we look at how the Abraham Accords are implemented over the longer term. And, and that is a desire by, by the citizenry of the region to focus on those areas that most directly benefit their own prosperity, right? And so when it, when you see the the warmth the warm reception which is really remarkable to look at the photos and hear some of the anecdotal stories i, you know, I think that reflects a, a a focus by those populations to change the nature of relationships in such a way that that benefit their needs and their daily lives and and that lens through which the abraham accords is viewed i think is an incredibly provocative and, and salient one. And, and clearly, I think how the UAE leadership uh, and the people of the UAE have, have embraced uh, the normalization. Whether you can do this in other places, I, I think that remains to be seen. But I do think it's worth recognizing what are the common threads in the UAE context that are shared by communities across the Middle East, including in those countries that have already sought to normalize and those that may in the future. Yeah, if I could just add a couple things. I think what the warmth signals to me is that there was not just a rightness, but a readiness on both sides. Um, and so if we're talking about, you know, is that replicable? I think what's important is that, you know, in this context, then I would argue that it probably wasn't U.S. might um, that was the linchpin in making this happen. Obviously, the U.S. Of United States was a very important broker. It can be a very important broker moving forward. But I would think the lesson to learn is not 
let's go out and force as many as these deals possible by handing out all the concessions we can manage left and right, you know, tying up these deals, because I think, you know, how this changes the region. And I think that's going to be slow. I think this is an important moment, but not kind of an immediate overnight revolutionary turning point um, is largely going to be dependent on that warmth and how that actually grows into a lasting, open, hopefully mutually beneficial um, and cooperative relationship. So I think the warmth is, is something special and really means that while there might be space moving forward, that that should be, you know, approached cautiously and strategically. Um, we have some uh, a couple of questions from Atid leaders. Uh, Zach Shank, who is a leader of IPF Atid in Washington, D.C. Hi, Zach. Um, and I'm going to direct this one to Lisa first. What will the Biden administration's approach um, to burden sharing in the Middle East be, and how might that affect the U.S.'s role in regard to the Abraham Accords or the JCPOA? I think that's an excellent question. I, I think burden sharing as a term uh, signals that the U.S. has a sense of humility about what it can and cannot accomplish on its own in the region, uh, what the dynamics in the region are and what the global dynamics are with respect to other areas of strategic interest uh, for the United States. And so I, I think it means a lot of things. I think there's, we tend to talk about it strictly in terms of security burden sharing, right? So the idea of how you partner on the ground to protect against certain threats, how you leverage assets and material and other kinds of tools on the defense side. But I, I would argue that this team should and probably will look at burden sharing across the board. And that means diplomatic burden sharing. How do we engage together in pursuing di diplomatic resolutions to the conflicts that have, that have plagued the region for so long? How we build coalitions around those kinds of diplomatic efforts outside of the region with other partners, economic burden sharing at a time when you, those resources are incredibly scarce and in you know, the current economic global environment, how we talk together about leveraging our, our tools and our resources to, to maximize what objectives we seek as, as the United States and as a partner with others. So, so I, think, I think all of that comes into play uh, when we look at just the necessity of limited U.S. bandwidth, you again, priorities that draw attention outside of the region, not to mention the domestic demands on this new team's attention, uh, burden sharing com comes into play, I think, in almost every conversation. Uh, to the extent that it applies to the Abraham Accords, I would just lay that framework and place it on how we talk with partners in the region about how they work together and how the U.S. can continue to support that, but also where the U.S. has a competitive advantage to, to apply and where others can take the lead as well, working together. So I think, I think the Abraham Accords actually provides an incredibly useful framework to talk about issues like climate change and post-COVID economic stability and in global health issues for the region as partners in the Abraham Accords work together on those issues, and the U.S. can also take part in that framework. Thank you. Uh, Kaylee, we have a question from Jake Chernoff. The Biden administration has affirmed a commitment to the two-state solution. 
Do you expect a formal rebuke of Trump's imbalanced deal of the century and or the drafting of an honest and fair replacement? Um, yeah, I'm, I think it, it's important that from, you know, the start that the Biden administration reaffirmed U.S. commitment to two states. I think um, obviously a lot of Trump policies put that into question and, you know, um, the two-state solution was very much under threat by a lot of changing on the ground realities. I think moving forward, I mean, I think historically we've definitely seen um, the Israeli-Palestinian issue, something that's kind of been addressed in the latter years of, of presidencies. And so starting from day one, um, I'm not sure exactly what the Biden plan will be. I do think what we're going to see from the get-go, or at least what I hope to see, is moves taken to improve the prosperity, freedom, and security of all people um, on the ground, especially in the context of, you know, humanitarian crises uh, happening in Gaza and the West Bank, um, access to the COVID-19 vaccine, you know, both the global health, public health, and the economic effects of the pandemic moving forward, um, you know, assessing what the U.S. role is, especially, you know, in the aftermath of the Abraham Accords and in being, um, you know, its role in this conflict and and elevating other partners to come. I think we're not going to see previous models replicated by the administration. I definitely think they're making an effort to break from the past. This is not, you know, an additional year of Obama. And this is really kind of a new team, a a new path, a new um, agenda moving forward. Because the Middle East, I think, generally writ large is a lower issue, I would not expect a, a, a you know, new plan thrown out um, over the next year. But are they going to look to make life better for people on the ground? I think so. I think we'll see that. Definitely. Hope, hope so. Yes, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking it so it becomes true, Susie. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, Elisa, another IPFT leader out of Boston, Jonah Nagy, asks, how might Iran-Arab Gulf reconciliation be beneficial or not beneficial for Israel's security? So, you know, I think I think when we talk about you know, engagement on behalf of the Gulf uh, with Iran, we've got to be, we, we can't be naive about this, right? We need to see this through the lens of an effort to de-escalate in the region right, to really bring the temperature down in in the near and medium term uh, so that the kinds of missteps and provocations that we saw, I think, up close and personally over the course of the last several years do not become the, the, the day-to-day occurrence, right? So in that context, that de-escalation, that focus on, on lowering temperatures and tensions, I think benefits across the board. Uh, I think there will always be a healthy amount of skepticism, uh, no, no shortage of that on behalf of both sides of that equation on where they are vis-a-vis the other, right? The Iranians have perceptions about Gulf actions and postures that they believe run counter to their national security interests. Clearly, the Iranian regime takes steps that run counter to the security interests of the Gulf. I, that it will not be resolved in the near term. And so, you know, to the extent that we can continue to work together to address those areas, to reduce tensions where we can, and to work together to contain and address those threats that continue to emanate from Iran. I think working together on those things benefits 
not only the Gulf security, but Israel security as well in the long term, while it also serves U.S. interests. Kaylee, I've got a question from one of our board members, Bob Sugarman, who asks, how will the Biden administration deal with the movements in Israel to legalize outposts and expand at Givat Hamatoz? Actually, not, I mean, to uh, start building a settlement at Givat Hamatoz and also possibly E1. And maybe, Kaylee, you can explain the significance of Givat Hamatoz and E1 and why they have been red lines for previous administrations. Yeah. Um, I, Definitely think, you know, building on my previous statement that that this administration is going to hopefully um, basically reemphasize some of the um, the values and um, the priorities that existed before Trump took office in the context of, of Israeli actions um, to uh, encroach upon, um, you know, important land that need would need to be turned back over to the, to the Palestinians. Uh, based on a lot of proposed maps for what a two-state solution would actually need to look like, um, you know, in the expansion of infrastructure, et cetera, that would make that increasingly difficult to, to un, you know, tangle. Um, specifically what they plan on doing, I'm not sure. I know that um, colleagues of mine have offered several options on how to approach settlements and outposts moving forward. Um, I think what we're going to hopefully see, like I said before, is some you know immediate action like has already happened. So public statements reaffirming commitment to two states. Hopefully, public statements that are a little bit more specific, um, that don't let kind of that don't write a blank check like the uh, you know Trump administration was doing in terms of actions that the Israeli government is taking on. Um, but I think I would guess that there are some other priorities, even in that context, like I said before, access to the COVID vaccine, making sure that we can get Palestinians vaccinated um, so that, you know, they're not left behind as, you know, Israel and the region move forward in in the wake of this pandemic um, before it even begins to tackle some of these, you know, really complicated issues that I'm not even a foremost expert in. Um, And so, it's going to be a staged process, I think. Um, and I think there's time for, for people to throw out the recommendations about how they move forward. Thank you. Uh, Elisa, Mindy Stein asks, don't we have to worry that if President Biden re-enters the JCPOA, this will start a nuclear arms race in the region, which is not in the best interest of the United States? It's an excellent question. You, know, I think I think returning to the JCPOA in terms of compliance in in the near term while looking to build on the JCPOA as a deal helps to mitigate for the concerns about about new proliferation race in the region. I mean, at at the core, the JCPOA is meant to be an arms control agreement, right? So it works precisely against the idea of proliferation because Iran's program presents the most significant risk to proliferation in the region. So dealing with that, I think, is part and parcel to having a strong non-proliferation policy on the nuclear front as well as on non-nuclear front. And, and so not going back to the JCPOA, I don't think does very much in terms of halting uh, a potential arms race or nuclear race in the region. In fact, I would argue not having the JCPOA only makes that reality more possible. Uh, I mean, we could talk about whether technically that is something we expect other partners to do. There's obviously been a whole lot of different signals 
uh, from different actors in the region about what they would pursue and how they would pursue it in the event that Iran became a nuclear threshold state. Uh, I think not having the JCPOA over the last two years has only exacerbated that risk and the sense of anxiety and urgency among certain players in the region to articulate a desire for their own nuclear deterrent. So again, returning to the JCPOA, while it doesn't address every issue and it doesn't, it's not the silver bullet for all of these problems, it certainly does freeze the nuclear program to the extent that it can be frozen where it is. It puts back into place kind of the monitoring and evaluation and, and, and inspections regime that is so stringent that allows us to be able to understand where the Iranian nuclear program is at any given moment and where it may not be, um, is some of the best tools to ensure that that proliferation risk doesn't become more real because the Iran nuclear program is at least at a point where we can manage for it while we look at really strengthening the deal and its provisions, particularly in future out years. Can I actually chime in here, Susie? Please. Yeah, I wanted to tie this. I think I saw um, another question from the audience that was talking about, um, you know, the JCPOA, the Iranian threat in regards to, you know, the potential of decreasing arms sales to the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And I just wanted to kind of build off a lot of good points that uh, Elisa made um, about the importance of the JCPOA and make a point that um, I like to make, which is that conventional assets in the region do not have even, you know, talk about causation, but correlating effect to a lower Iranian threat in terms of its regional behavior um, across the Middle East, attacks on Americans, um, allies, et cetera. Um, you know, at the height when the United States had 150,000 troops, um, that was a, you know, when a lot of actually Iranian activity was at its worst. If we look at when has Iran been more rest restrained and pulled back, um, it's been when there have been fewer assets and Iran was actually party to the 2015 JCPOA. Over the past two years, we've seen the Trump administration um, put more assets into the region from aircraft carriers to Patriot missile defense systems. Um, and the response to that has been increasing Iranian aggression as it perceives itself to be under greater threat. So when Elisa talks about not wanting to start an arms race and how about the nuclear deal serves that, I think, you know, limiting or at least um, elevating diplomacy to the same kind of level as security partnerships is an important um, place for the United States to be moving forward as it approaches the region in the context of Iran specifically, um, but overall as a whole, because we don't want to end up in any kind of arms race, nuclear, conventional, um, that doesn't benefit regional parties, and that definitely doesn't benefit the United States. Elise, I'm going to ask two questions that are related to the JCPOA. We have a lot of questions on this, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. I know you're, you're able to see them as well. Um, Henry Berman asks, will Netanyahu be as visibly obstructive to the JCPOA discussions as in 2015? And Jean Nassia asks, what do you think about the effects of IDF Chief of Staff Kohavi's outspoken remarks against the U.S. reentering the JCPOA? I, I really don't think I'm in a position to answer that first one. Uh, you know, I, I can only express my personal hope that we've all learned learn lessons from 2015. And uh, and I think you know, the Biden team has already signaled that it has it has reviewed the lessons that were learned from that experience, both good and bad. And 
and I, I hope that there is room to chart a different course moving forward, whether whether people make decisions to do that or not, I think is really a question for them, not for me. Um, you know, I, I think I think there are a couple of things that have struck me about the conversation just in the last 12 days since inauguration uh, and comments coming out from Israeli officials and this sense, I think, of you feeling uh the, the Biden administration's focus on return uh, uh, to the JCPOA as a you know, status quo ante kind of return redux to 2015 without consideration of the real concerns that, that regional partners have had. Uh, and I think Secretary Blinken, certainly President Biden and others have sought to try and communicate that publicly to the extent possible. I have to imagine that is already beginning to be communicated privately as well. And and this is, to borrow a phrase from a colleague of ours, this is the first year of a, of a new administration, not the seventh year of, of an administration. And so I think it's important that there's room for people to have those private conversations where we may have to express some differences of view, but it, to really recognize that this team is being consistent in its messaging and to take it at its word that it doesn't see the JCPOA as a one a one stop uh, solution to everything, and and that they will take those considerations under under uh, in consultation under serious advisement and and consideration. So. You, I, I'm curious about you know, what it reflects in terms of the discussion within the Israeli system itself and you know, different, differing views of the value or, or non-value of the JCPOA in the near term. But from a U.S. perspective, I think you know, the administration is being as consistent as it can be, that it seeks compliance for compliance, that it is not in a rush to do this certainly not wanting it more than than the Iranian regime wants it and and that it is already setting the foundation for this as one step to a longer negotiation with Iran uh, on the nuclear front as well as dealing with partners on on the regional front and and I think all of those have to be taken at face value on day 12 Kaylee do you want to add anything I just think yeah um it goes back to, I think, you know, who wants to be a constructive, a constructive partner. I think that's what the Biden administration is really looking for. Um, it's willing to have tough conversations. Um, but if only if someone is coming to the table, I think, from, you know, a place of, of good intent and of, um, you know, intent to kind of really sit there and work on things and not, you know, make big fights publicly um, or on the Hill. So I'll just throw that out there. Um, and we'll see, uh, how things play out in the future. I hope more smoothly than they did in 2015. Um, in regards to, you know, what, what the approach will be and how all of this is going to unfold. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of technical challenges that the Biden administration has to overcome in addition to these kind of strategic partner related challenges. Um, but I think one thing I know is that, you know, there's a lot of concern about, you know, re-entry to the JCPOA being um, a move that relinquishes U.S. leverage. And I just want to kind of caution against that path of thinking. Um, we've kind of demonstrated, I mean, one thing that the Trump administration did demonstrate is that, you know, U.S. unilateral sanctions can cause economic pain and they can be um, turned on and turned off when 
the executive branch determines they want them turned on and turned off. So moving forward, I think it's best to try to get back to a place where there are restraints on Iran's nuclear program and to do that as quickly um, as we can. And then from that kind of, you know, crisis uh, quelled position, strategically look about how we move forward in a way that does serve multiple the interests of multiple parties, including, you know, Israel's, the Gulf states, et cetera. Kaylee, I'm going to stay with you a second. This is a question from Nimrod Novik, who is Israel Policy Forum's Israel Fellow. Can the administration leverage recent and future normalizations for some progress on the Israeli-Palestinian issue? And if so, how? Yeah, I think what is kind of most important um, from my perspective in terms of the accords is that if you look at the history of the U.S. role Uh, in being a mediator for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it obviously has not been successful. um, And that comes with it a lot of baggage. So as Arab, you know, um, Israeli ties are normalized, you know, not just with the UAE, but hopefully, yes, there are more deals and agreements that follow or more formal normalization agreements. And that what's happening is that there are more players who can play kind of less of a backseat role and more of a kind of forward facing role in terms of, you know, who's bringing, you know, certain messages, who's enforcing um, certain lines, kind of how this is becoming hopefully a bigger picture and less of a kind of narrow three party um, negotiation. I think also this is laying down a foundation for greater international involvement Um, I think the United States has an important role moving forward, but I think we'll fall into the traps of the past if we just kind of try to replicate this three-party model in terms of reaching an actual agreement. Lisa, do you want to add anything? Okay. Completely Uh, agree with what Kaylee just said. Okay. Um, Janet Halbert asks, if the Middle East is not a top priority of the Biden administration, uh, do our experts think that the United States will have an impact or role in stopping illegal settlement building or creeping annexation? Yeah, I can jump in here, Elisa. Um, yeah, I think uh, when I say that the Middle East is not a priority, I think that's because um, there are a lot of kind of other global Crises. There are global threats that that affect everyone um, from competition with China um, and a liberal use of technology to climate change to pandemic. There's a lot of things where where the really you know the whole international community has to cooperate, um, and the Biden team has a kind of a big a big challenge ahead of them in reasserting U.S. leadership and reliability and credibility to to tackle a lot of those issues. Um, I think some of that is gonna is gonna carry over into the situation. I think preventing annexation, um, limiting and halting settlement expansion are going to be immediate interests. Um, well, I think it's going to. I hope that the Biden administration looks to achieve what it can on the ground, even as it realizes maybe it doesn't have the resources, the time, nor should it be the one who is championing, you know, a peace agreement between Israel and Palestine. I think. Also, most would acknowledge that maybe it isn't it isn't ripe, it isn't ready. Um, and so forcing that right now could cause kind of a great greater backslide. So looking for those small efforts on the ground. They're not small because they um, have big consequences, but looking for actual immediate effective change, I think that is kind of the pragmatic viewpoint of this administration. 
Susie, could I just pile a quick, sure. a quick comment on that? Please. So I think here too, uh, it's important to think about another kind of major pillar of how the Biden administration has articulated its view to engaging the world and, and the role that uh, multilateral organizations and coalition building play in addressing some of the toughest, most complicated uh, uh, issues, not only in the Middle East, but beyond, but certainly in the Middle East. And so you, I, I think this idea about bandwidth and refocusing on other parts of the world because of the, the demand to do so does not obscure the point that this team really believes in using alliances, multilateral organizations, and other tools to really strengthen the diplomatic hand. And I would imagine that new governing principle will be applied to issues like this, as well as other issues. How can we work with partners to do as much good as possible while being humble, again, about what we can do unilaterally and as an outside party? Uh, so, so I think there are, there are creative and also kind of just tried and true ways in which this season team is going to approach some of these, these policy issues. One more quick question from Aaron Weinberg, who is our Director of Government Relations. Can you see a scenario in which the U.S. government conditions, even if privately moving forward with F-35s, drones, et cetera, with productive, constructive action in the reason on Israeli-Palestinian issues and help make progress on the situation on the ground, such as providing assistance for basic Palestinian humanitarian assistance? Kelly, you want to start and I'll pile on? No, you start and then I'll <laughs> close. I know we only have 60 seconds. Okay. So so I, I think I wouldn't use the word condition. Um, I personally have a problem with using that term uh, in, in all kinds of environments uh, on, on policy fronts. But I do think that this comes back to a fundamental point that Kelly and I made, which is having holistic conversations with partners about policies that are in the U.S. interest. So to the extent that arms sales are part of that conversation, they are part and parcel of a conversation about U.S. support for a two-state solution. They are part and parcel to a conversation about U.S. support to de-escalating with Iran, et cetera, et cetera. And so while not conditioned, I think very much part of a comprehensive discussion about what U.S. policy in the Middle East should be and what it will be. Yeah, definitely going to come into a conversation about shared interests and how we can mutually um, support each other in, in achieving those interests. This has been terrific. Thank you so much, Elise and Kaylee, for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. So again, if you have not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all for joining us today. Once more, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, sign up to receive the weekly Koplo column in your email inbox, and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Please stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing, which will take place next Tuesday, February 9th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Thanks, everybody.